Hello and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about things in the scriptures that have made them become more real to us because we believe the more real they are, the more we are able to apply them to our lives and we really need to do that. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and we're happy to have back with us. I think this is the first time in the history of the podcast that we've had the same guest back-to-back weeks, uh, but we're happy to have back with us Josh Matson. So welcome, Josh. Thanks, Gary. Great to be back. Yeah. And so last week, uh, as we did Haggai, we introduced Josh. So you can go back to that and and uh, hear a little bit more of, about Josh and, and so on. Uh, he's lived in Israel as he studied. He works on the Dead Sea Scrolls. He's teaching seminary right now. All sorts of, uh, of fun things that uh, you could have learned about Josh. We might ask him to tell us another thing uh, about him that's uh, of interest. Uh, well, yeah. Is there something else? Maybe we should learn about your hobbies or something. Yeah, I mean, we could do that. Uh, I think one of my weird hobbies is every uh, Thanksgiving morning, I wake up and run a half marathon. So I like that is weird. Yeah. Um, my, my wife is a runner and I always wonder what kind of brain damage people have that they're doing that. So yeah. but anyway, yeah. Yeah. So so I maybe that's that's the tidbit that we can give readers today is that uh that, that, that's what I do. I, I try to, to get a number of miles in. But I, a few years back, we were living in Florida. And uh, I just woke up one morning and said, you know what, it would be it would justify all the eating that I'm about to do if I just went out and ran a half marathon today. So I, uh, I laced up the running shoes and, and ran one of the benefits of being in Florida is it's a little cool, but it's not too cold. So it's actually a really comfortable yeah. run. But when I got back that we had a pool in our, our apartment complex. And so I got back and I just, I dipped in the pool for a half hour and it was like a cold <laughs> bath. And so uh, I didn't quite have that. I ran it this year uh, at my parents' home in, in Chubbuck, Idaho. Uh, and uh, I woke up, it was a, a blistering 21 degrees when I started, uh, <laughs> but it was kind of fun. I, uh, from my parents' home up and around the Pocatello, Idaho temple and back was just about uh, uh, the distance of a half marathon. So uh, it was kind of a it was a fun way to to kick off that holiday. Uh, so yeah, there you go. For the, those maybe looking for an extra runner on their Ragnar team or something, maybe maybe that's what that was for. <laughs> there you go. That's fun. So now now that you got me going, I do have to say so. Um, my wife's I don't know how you, you know your wife's can spouses can talk you into all sorts of stuff you never other ever do. Uh, she has talked me into doing a couple of triathlons and duathlons with her. I like biking a lot. I like swimming a lot. I hate running. Um, and, uh, so each time, and so I only do because of the run portion, I will only do like the baby or beginner stuff. I don't do any longer stuff. Right. So like this duathlon, there are three miles of running and, uh, or the triathlons each time, like I, I'm having a great time on the bike and then I get off and I start running. I'm like, what, what am I doing this for? What? I can't remember why I'm doing this right now. It, it seems like it's a bad idea. Who talked me into this? What? I'm not sure if I even like my wife at all right now. I'm just joking, but, uh, uh, and I'll, I will say the last time we did the duathlon was the first time I've ever beaten her. So, and it was oh, by wow. like 45 seconds. So I'm really happy about that, but there we go. Uh, but I, it's still the whole time I'm running. I'm like, Oh man, this is so stupid. <laughs> so, well, so I, I'm not someone that anyone is going to consider having on their, their, uh, uh, what would what, you say? Ragar? I mean, I thought you were yeah, saying the Ragnar team, you know, the, the, the relay thing, but, uh, right, so. and, and, I, I've got the similar, my wife feels like you probably, uh, our first anniversary, uh, we decided to run a marathon, uh, on our anniversary. And yeah, I, 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 I'd say this, this relationship is over. Yeah. Done. Well, yeah. I've always said on the, the other end, uh, I wanted to set the bar so low 
that even if I forgot our anniversary, it's if I woke up, that one. it's better than running 26.2 miles. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I haven't forgotten an anniversary yet, but <laughs> just in case that happens right. in the future, I just want to be able to say, hey, at least I didn't make you run a marathon. Today. It's, it's still better than that stupid first anniversary. <laughs> uh, that's good. Okay, you made my day, Josh. All right, I'm, I'm happy. Well, there we go. Uh, wonderful. Well, let's talk about Malachi, I guess, also. Um, and uh, we, we'll just kind of give a little bullet point thing that we're really going to focus on uh, probably the most famous verses of Malachi and different ways that those are, are used, uh, those verses in Malachi chapter four. So uh, Josh has done a lot of work on those, and, and that's going to be our focus in this uh, particular episode. So why don't you take it away, Josh? Yeah, and, and maybe just as a general background for some people who may want to know, Malachi is an interesting book because... Uh, like some of these other minor prophets that you've covered on the podcast that we've studied with Come Follow Me, uh, we don't really know a lot about the individual. Uh, and so we've seen that with some of the other uh, prophetic individuals like Nahum or Habakkuk, yeah. uh, where we just don't know. Yeah, we Joel, just don't know yeah. anything. Or Joel, uh, we just get this information of the name. And, and Malachi may actually even be further on that because the name Malachi means my servant in Hebrew. And so there's kind of this play between the reference to Malachi in, in Malachi chapter one and Malachi chapter three, where scholars have looked at it and said, okay, is, uh, is this just kind of a form prophetic text? Uh, or do we actually have a, an individual, a prophetic individual named Malachi uh, as, as people of faith? And from some things that we've heard, uh, we, we believe that Malachi was an individual uh, who lived and was a prophetic being, but we don't know anything else about, uh, about him. And so I, I think that there's both something instructive about the anonymity of Malachi, that this is a message or a text that's given to anyone who's a servant of God. Um, but I, I, I'm hoping that when we get to that big line in the next life, we uh, get an opportunity to find out who Malachi was, uh, specifically what was going on in Malachi's lifetime and um, how an individual who's so anonymous in the text uh, actually gives us some of the most memorable teachings of the Old Testament uh, that we will see that then take us into the New Testament. Good. Good, good. All right. So let's do it. So uh, one thing uh, that I always like to point out is that in Hebrew, uh, the divisions between chapters are a little bit different. And so Malachi only has three chapters in the Hebrew text. Uh, and so the verses that we're going to talk about uh, appear in Hebrew in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 3, uh, rather than that division of chapter 4 being added in uh, later editions uh, of Malachi. And so it's Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, as we read in the King James Version, where we, as Latter-day Saints especially, have an affinity for this text. Uh, we are familiar that this is the only text that's quoted in all four of the standard works. So we have Malachi 4, 5, and 6. The text then appears in Luke uh, through a quotation. And then we see it in quoted form by the Savior himself to the Nephites in 3 Nephi, and then is quoted with some variation in Doctrine and Covenants section 2, and is one of the texts that's mentioned uh, directly by Joseph Smith in Joseph Smith History and the Pearl of Great Price. And so we, we get all five of the standard works that uh, are referencing this uh, important verse uh, from the Bible. 
Yeah, and, and as you said, that's the only verse that you can find that in. So it does make it stand out as something that's fairly important. When both Jesus and Moroni are quoting it, you get the idea, hey, maybe I ought to pay attention to this. Yeah, and so um, I think that's important for all of us to keep in mind, is what is so important uh, about this verse uh, that we would want to make sure that we have it in all of the standard work. So maybe the best place to start is to go directly to the text uh, and remind our audience uh, and those who are listening about what the text actually says in Malachi, um, because it's going to be kind of the basis for what we're going to uh, discuss later. So Malachi chapter four, verses five and six, the final two verses of the King James Bible uh, there is some variation in the Hebrew text as the prophetic literature is put before the writings of the Ketuvim. Uh, and so this text would fall in the middle uh, of the Hebrew Bible text. And, and that's one thing that's important is maybe uh, in the King James Version, when you open up, you'll see at the end of chapter four, even in the LDS edition, that it says the end of the prophets. Uh, and there's a, there's a little bit of a uh, a mark there that says the end of the books of the prophets of the Old Testament. And that's because Malachi was the last of the prophetic books in what's called the, the Nevi, Nevi'im, the, the prophetic section of the Hebrew Bible. So yeah. you have Torah, Nevi'im, and then you've got Ketuvim. Uh, and so it's the end of the prophetic section, that second section of, of the Hebrew Bible. In case anybody opens that and said, wait a second, I've always seen that and wondered uh, what yeah. that may be. Yeah, and some people take that, not of our faith, but of others to take that as, and it's just kind of funny since they don't know really what it means. And they take him and say, no, see, there are no more prophets after Malachi. That's the end of, of, of having prophets. And it's a silly thing, but anyway, yeah. So true. So well, when we read these last two verses, so Malachi four, five, and six, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Uh, and so we read this and it's this this prophecy hearkening back to one of our earliest prophets. Uh, as we're talking about this, I, I haven't made this connection before, but Elijah is one of the earliest prophets that we have record of. Uh, in the Old Testament after uh, Moses and Joshua, we kind of get this interim period and then we get into the histories and there's uh, Elijah, one of these first prophetic figures that we see in the, uh, the I don't even know what we might call that, the, the actual <laughs> Israelite period where they're in Israel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and the period of the monarchy, right? So post, yeah. post Joshua, I mean, Samuel is certainly uh, a, a prophet that we hear a lot about but samuel's kind of different he's a prophet and a priest and a chief judge and that kind of a thing right um uh and we'd say the same right, thing about we, nathan too right yeah 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 that's exactly right and after him we have nathan but he's really once we get into this kind of big narrative he's the first prophet we hear a lot about and, and a unique prophet from the standpoint that we don't get a lot of elijah's teachings it's elijah's actions right uh, and so uh, we don't get a lot of prophetic literature as those who followed along with Come Follow Me this year and have read the Old Testament. Most of the prophets are just teaching things. Uh, we don't get the narrative that tells us what they're doing. Uh, but with Elijah and then after him with Elisha, and really then we have to skip forward all the way to Jonah to really have a narrative structure with the prophetic uh, individual. Right. Well, and I've said, uh, and we'll kind of maybe 
this is a perfect place as we wrap up the Old Testament for me to kind of recap a couple of things I mentioned here and there and here and there for, for my audience. But uh, it's interesting because you do get a shift throughout the entire ancient Near East in terms of, of focus on, on writing as opposed to orality. And that's right about when you get what we call the writing prophets. And that's beginning with, with probably Amos uh, and, uh, you know, right around there, Amos, Isaiah, they're on the, the front edge of that, right? All of the prophets we have before that, we are we have the narrative that's written about them later, um, uh, but it, it's a, a narrative. So even you don't have teachings from Samuel. You have a couple little teachings, but not really extensive teachings, right, from Samuel or from Nathan or Elijah or Elisha. You don't get these sermons or anything like that. Um, and then you get this shift uh, to where uh, writing things down becomes more important. And that's it's after that that they're going to write those stories of those prophets. But it seems like no one has recorded their words in a way that we can have those sermons. Uh, and suddenly you get uh, all these prophets who are writing and we get very little narrative, as you're saying, because instead we're relying on what is written down. And I don't know that they were all writing. We know like Jeremiah has someone else writing it. And so on Amos probably was not literate, but someone is either memorizing and then writing it down or writing it down, something along those lines. We don't know how we get it, but you have this, this important shift. And I find it really interesting. We don't know when Jonah is, is written, but if he's uh, the same Jonah that we have mentioned in Kings, then he, he probably is like among the earliest of those prophetic books. Right. And that's interesting yeah. because we don't actually have Jonah's teachings. We have the narrative about Jonah, but in a separate, so it's almost like he's a bridge book, right? He's, he's yeah. that, that book, is almost the prophets and almost the narratives of first and second kings. It's it's in between the two, right at the period where we're making that transition from these these uh, way of thinking about things. So uh, I, Malachi, then we don't actually know if he's the very last. Maybe he predates some of these other minor prophets we've been doing. We don't know exactly, but but the way it's arranged, we're just going to say last. He's the last of these writing prophets. So. We've, we've kind of hit all these phases now as we're we're winding up. Yeah, and, and I love that connection. Is It helps us to show that prophets are functioning within their time and their culture. Yeah. Uh, and the time and culture hadn't gotten to a point where they were writing all of these teachings down yet before the writing prophets. And so it helps us to see that God utilizes his ordained servants, the prophets, in the capacity in which they need in their time and place. Yeah, And yep. I, I think maybe our prophets today are going to be remembered as the media prophets, right? Because so many people aren't going to necessarily engage with their words textually, but they're going to visually watch what they say and and see that much yep. more. So who, who knows in the future, maybe that's the, the next transition as we go from writing their words to, to actually being able to visually see and hear their voices. And in some ways, we are moving back to an oral-based uh, culture based uh, because of podcasts and and even general conference. Like a lot of people just listen, they're not, not watching, right? So it's interesting. We are shifting. We were just talking about the shift from or, orality to to a written word, but maybe we're moving back to an orally-based culture right now. So interesting. Never thought of that. So kind of kind of a fun way to to to, to recap all of the prophets that we've yeah. just gone through. Yeah. So, so we get this reference to Elijah and a prophecy by Malachi that before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, God will send Elijah the prophet. Um, and if we take this just on a very literal level, and as Latter-day Saints we do, is this is a prophecy of Elijah returning priesthood keys to the earth 
prior to the winding up scene or uh, the end of days, this day of the Lord theme that we see throughout the prophetic literature, uh, which is a day in which the Lord takes back what's his. And so this, this day of the Lord that's coming, uh, we sometimes make that equivalent with the second coming. And very much is that read in the early days of the church that that's what the day of the Lord is, is, is this coming of, of the Messiah, the return, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so we read that. And from a literal standpoint, as Latter-day Saints and as the, the prophet Joseph Smith was, was thinking and was presented with, as we'll talk about shortly, uh, this was an important part of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, Elijah coming, and maybe we'll just spoil the, the rest of the podcast. Maybe people turn it off after this. But that literal fulfillment is what happens on April 3rd in 1836 when yeah. Elijah the prophet returns to the Kirtland Temple and bestows upon Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery those priesthood keys uh, associated with what we call the sealing ordinance uh, or those temple, uh, uh, the authorization to perform temple ordinances. Yeah. And it's amazing. It's it's a profound, profound moment in in the restoration, I think, but more profound than we often realize. And I'll just throw out there. I mean, this is maybe trivial and, and me making too much of things, but I've always found it interesting that the verse right before the ones we just read, verse five and six is about the return of Elijah. Verse four says, remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in, in Horeb for all Israel. And I find that that just a tidbit interesting because Moses and Elijah come together to the current temple, right? And, and so it's it's almost like Malachi is is giving us a preview for those things that need to happen uh, and that restorative moment in the temple. Yeah. And so and leading up to that moment in uh, that we read about in Doctrine and Covenants section uh, 110, one thing about this verse, again, we started out by saying this is a verse that's quoted in all the books of Scripture. Uh, but if we go to the Joseph Smith history account of Moroni visiting Joseph for the first time, Moroni quotes Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Uh, and as he does this, Joseph makes a fascinating observation. We often talk about Joseph uh, being biblical literate, but not necessarily worldly literate. Uh, but Joseph was astute enough to recognize that when Moroni quotes these verses, they're different than the way in which they appear in the King James Version of the Bible. And so uh, as we reread in Joseph Smith history, uh, verse 36, uh, Joseph Smith records, after telling me these things, he commenced quoting the prophecies of the Old Testament. He first quoted part of the third chapter of Malachi, and he quoted also the fourth or last chapter of the same prophecy, though with a little variation from the way it reads in our Bibles. Instead of quoting the first verses it reads in our books, he quoted, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn his heaven. That's where he's getting that quotation from Malachi 3. Then if we skip ahead to verse 38, he says, And again, he quoted the fifth verse thus, Behold, I will reveal unto you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He also quoted the next verse, different. And he shall plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers, and the hearts of the children shall turn to their fathers. If it were not so, the whole earth would be utterly wasted at his coming. And uh, I don't know about you, Carrie, but for me, the first time I really realized that, I actually had a little bit of a struggle. 
I said, why would Moroni show up and quote a scripture with so much variation? Uh, that the, the variations that we read there differ greatly from where we started in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. And how did Joseph just take it and yeah. just be like, oh, yeah, that's scripture. We're good. <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you, I mean, let's hear what your uh, your reaction, where you want to go with this, because because I'll tell you my reaction, but it might take us a little bit of a different place. I don't know. And so I've got some some fun things that I, I do with that uh, verse, but uh, because of that, but go, go ahead. What's what are your take? Well, my, my first take, and, and later on, I, I got something different that we'll, we'll talk about. But at first, I just said, wait a second. I thought scripture was concrete and set, mm. especially when we get to the 1800s. How can you diverge from the scriptural text? And, and so for me, at first, there was almost a struggle of faith that I struggled and said, why would Moroni do this? If this is really God's church and if this is really God's word in the Old Testament, why would he change it or alter it? And, and maybe it was my maturity at the time within the gospel and, and understanding how scripture works, but it did. It, it didn't sit well with me. And it was something that I actually prayed about and thought about for a number of years. Uh, mm. is, and even though it wasn't at the forefront of my mind every day, but over a few year period, this was something that always lingered in the back of my head is why do we have differences in restoration scripture? And that's Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, than what we have in the Bible. How do I how do I put these together? How do I reconcile these differences? Because the world is going to tell me, well, your text is clearly wrong then if it doesn't follow the Bible and that this was being made up. But I'm grateful that I struggled and wrestled with that question because eventually I got to a point uh, with the help of individuals like yourself of being able to seek scripture a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So, and that's fantastic for, for me. It happened actually almost the, the opposite direction where uh, I thought initially, oh, well, I guess it was recorded wrong in Malachi. So Moroni was giving us the corrected version. And it wasn't until I read uh or notice, I, I, I'm sure I'd read it before, but I didn't really notice when the Savior quotes it that the Savior quotes it the same way Malachi does. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute. Uh, that that means that it's not Moroni giving us a correction because I'm sure the Savior can do this right, right? And we can get it in the Book of Mormon right. So uh, it's it's uh, Moroni changing something in some way and and giving us an interpretation. So uh, maybe we'll take a second and I can give you, uh, and hopefully... This isn't a spoiler alert for some of the things you want to talk about, but but this is what ended up happening to me. It ended up being pretty profound for me. I, I, I as I looked at that, I thought, okay, well, what is Moroni doing? And then I thought, well, in Malachi's day, when they hear, and and let me just uh, pull it up again, when they hear, he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers. Um, as Latter Day Saints, we hear that, and we immediately think, okay, to your father, your grandfather, your great grandfather, family history work, right? But I thought. What would Malachi's audience have thought when they hear turn their heart to their fathers? And I think they would have thought Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are their fathers. That's, that's the fathers they think of, right? And, and so it's got a covenant emphasis. And I think, okay, everyone would have understood that in, in Malachi's day. I think everyone would have understood that when the Savior quotes this to the Nephites. But in Joseph Smith's day, that's not what people are going to think. But the way that Moroni rewards it, makes it so you can't miss that when he says the promises made to the fathers 
Now you have to stop and think, oh, what promises to what fathers? Oh, that's got to be the covenant and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so it, it, in my opinion, that is Moroni helping us see what the original intent, uh, Malachi's original intent was in a day when it would have been harder for us to see it. And, and it changes that scripture to me. So it's still about family history work, but I think it is in a much larger scope, like family history work all the way back to Abraham, or in other words, all of us in the Abrahamic covenant together. And I was comforted to find uh, President Nelson and Elder Bednar talking about it that way. And since I've been talking about that and teaching and writing about it, President Nelson has said more about it. And so I feel, well, I don't know that that's the only interpretation and that's the only way we can take what Moroni is doing. But I do think it's important for us to see that covenant element in there. So that's that's kind of the, the, the short journey I went on when trying to f- think I had it figured out and then figuring out, wait, I didn't have it figured out and where I went from there. But Yeah. And and as you were speaking, Carrie, I couldn't help but think of uh, Elder Uchtdorf's talk about uh, faith of our fathers. He mm. quoted that hymn and he said, for me, my fathers would have been of a different faith than the Latter-day Saint faith. We we sometimes think. And that we're just talking about those pioneer ancestors that go back to the early days of the church. But I love that Elder Uchtdorf did the exact same thing that you just did. The faith of the fathers goes all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yeah. so remembering, or even if I remember correctly, um, Elder Uchtdorf even says the faith of my heavenly father. Mm. Um, and going all the way back to the original and and i love how luke in his genealogy of the savior that we'll talk about next year you know he he says that adam was the son of god right and so it's taking us all the way back to our heavenly parent and saying that's how far back we go um and we sometimes shortchange it by just thinking in that narrow short term uh but the reality is is we need to think of this on that that covenant grand scale of abrahamic covenant and the new and everlasting covenant of the gospel uh, I, perfectly said. I agree. And I've forgotten that talk by Elder Uchtdorf. So that's that's very good. It, it's actually interesting. I think you're right that a lot of times Latter-day Saints think faith, but it's actually not even a Latter-day Saint hymn, right? Uh, yeah. Faith of our fathers was about a different faith than Latter-day Saint. Faith. I mean, it's about Christian faith, uh, that, that song is. But anyway, yeah, it's, it's a fun thing. So that's a great talk. Thank you. I love it. And so, and, and I think this proves is a good transition is that so one of the things I did while I was working on my my dissertation, I was working on the minor prophets. And one chapter of my dissertation was just about how the minor prophets were quoted in the late second temple period. And so I wanted to see how do people introduce the minor prophets? uh, How do people engage with their text? And then what does the text of the minor prophets look like in these quotations? Uh, And so I'm not going to bore your audience with the 158 references that I found in Second Temple uh, Judaism (laughs) and early Christianity. Uh, But so so really, Malachi has that many references in uh, no, no, not Malachi, all the minor prophets. Oh, okay, okay. So we're looking, we're looking at everywhere from Amos to Malachi. So those 12 books, I was able to find about 158 references back to the minor prophets. Uh, so it, it was a fun study, but I don't think there was anything that was more impactful to me than finding three different versions of Malachi 4, 5, and 6 uh, uh. among these texts. So if we go back to my journey and this idea of really wrestling with that question of how can it be different? 
how can it be different than the Bible? And I love that you brought in the Savior's exact quotation in Third Nephi, that it's exactly word for word as we read uh, in the King James Version. But um, I was struggling with this. And so I'm sitting down doing my, my research on the Minor Prophets for my dissertation, and I start to come across these other references. Uh, now, I'm not going to look at these chronologically, uh, but what I do want to look at is I want to look at these in a way that may be helpful. So let's let's start with what would be the easiest to find, which is Luke chapter 1, verse 17. Hmm. So in, in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, uh, the uh, Luke, if he's writing his gospel, he starts uh, very early with this statement. And it's a quotation of Malachi uh, 3 or Malachi 4, 5. Um, and he says this, to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. And so the latter part of that quotation, the apotheosis, as, as we might call it, um, is different than yeah. what we read before. And so I find this and I start to go, wait a second, Luke's a lot closer to Malachi than I am. And he's a lot closer to Malachi than even Moroni is. Yeah. So why does Luke feel that he has the ability to take this text and use it a little bit differently? And for me, it taught me that Luke is trying to teach a lesson. The redundancy a little bit of what we see here in Malachi 4, 5, and 6, talking about children and fathers, Luke is reading this text, and to me, he seems to be saying the other part of this text is that we need the hearts of the parents to turn to their children, but we need the children to become obedient to the wisdom of the righteous. The fathers were righteous, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They were righteous. They entered the covenant. But today, those their posterity is being disobedient, and we need them to return to that wisdom. And so that little change by Luke started me on this other path where we could look at others. But that second, that second aspect of the disobedience to the wisdom of the righteous teaches us a whole other world of lessons than just the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers yeah. to the children. Well, that's good. That's really profound. It makes me start thinking of, you know, the, the Savior saying, uh, I mean, both John the Baptist and the Savior are making it clear to their Jewish audience. Uh, being descended from Abraham is not enough. You've got to have some more things going on here, right? Or even Isaiah saying, look to Abraham, your father. All of them seem to be saying, that, in a way, that same thing. You need to get back to the, the righteousness of those fathers whom you revere and are so excited you're descended from. You really ought to learn from that righteousness instead of what you are currently doing, right? So that's that's good. I had not I had not seen it that way, but that's profound and I think correct. That's good. Well, and, and we can continue to look at this because another text that goes along really well with what we're talking about uh, is a text that we have called Pseudophilo. Uh, so this is a, a Second Temple Jewish text that reads similar to a lot of the writings of Philo uh, that we have. Who's, uh, Philo of Alexandria? First, yes, yes. So writing in the first century uh, CE or AD. Um, but this text reads a lot like Philo, but it's not necessarily Philo. So that's why we call it pseudo Philo, and we don't necessarily know a lot of its history. But it's another place where we actually see the quotation of Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Uh, now, with pseudo Philo, one of the hard things is, is we have the Greek text of it, and we also have a Latin text. 
So the Latin text and the Greek text are going to read a little bit differently. So I hope that that's not too confusing uh, as we look at this. In the Greek text of Pseudophilo, in the quotation of Malachi 4 and 5, this is what the author writes. To restore the heart of the father to the child and the heart of mankind to his neighbor. That's definitely different. And so, so it, that again, the apodosis or that second aspect of the the um, of the statement is not only are we turning individuals to their families, but we're also going to turn the heart of mankind to their neighbor, uh, to those who, if we trace it back all the way, are also children of Abraham, and are also part of that covenant. And so we're now expanding from just worrying about our one genealogical line that goes father, son, mother, daughter, grandma, grandpa, all the way back to now say, but we still need to be looking out for our neighbors as well, because they are part of the covenant. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, because, we, I mean, we often say if you love your neighbors, you want to share the covenant with them. Right. So we make that same interpretation, but, but he's just done it in a different way. By, by kind of changing the, the wording a little bit, but making that same interpretation. That's interesting. So, so that's the Greek text of Pseudophilo. Now, when we get to the Latin text, they actually do something completely different. And so in the Latin text, when they quote Malachi 4 and 5, they say, I restore unto you your fathers. And I, I'm going to stop there for a second before I, I read the second part, because the language is much more authoritative. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if someone with authority is pronouncing a blessing upon the person who's receiving this. I restore you unto your fathers. That's um, interesting. And, and that bestowal language, uh, for me, makes me change the way that I read Malachi 4, 5, and 6, as this is what God wants to give me. God wants to bestow upon me a heart that turns to my fathers. Um, and he wants to restore. And that, that, that word restore is important, too, because it then suggests that my heart was there once. Hmm. That I once had my heart unto the fathers. Um, and, and so I can't help but think about where I've come from. Um, whether it's in mortality at a time where maybe I was more faithful, or maybe it's part of the pre-mortal life and the idea that I had, a, I had in an essence covenanted to remember my fathers all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by coming to earth and being part of God's covenant family. Yeah, that's good stuff. That's great. That's, that's, uh, well, lots of fun ways to look at this verse. And so, so that's the, the, the first part of it. But then the second part. So again, I restore you unto your fathers and your fathers unto you. This almost and sounds so like a ceiling the, ordinance the way they say it that way, really. Yeah. And so when we, when we think and, and, and carry your mind went exactly where mine when I read this the first time was, I had always questioned why we just talked about turning hearts and temple work and all of this. And even Joseph Smith's great statement that this, um, this verse is telling us what we have to do as part of the restoration, that this is what needs to be done prior to the coming of the Lord and during the millennium. But here, it's the bestowal of that blessing. 
is the blessing is, is when you are sealed, you are restored to your fathers and your fathers are restored to you. That's really powerful. Because in the end, I mean, we have all these variations and yet I'm not hearing any of them that don't in a way speak to exactly how we understand this verse. Yeah. And, 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 and that so, last one is kind of the ultimate end of how we understand this verse. Yeah, is that it was we're getting back to this 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 the sealing together of, of fathers and children. Um and and so uh pseudophilo for that reason alone, I love that text. And because of the fact that we have those variations, they teach me more about what Malachi was prophesying that Elijah would come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord to accomplish. Hmm. So um, with that, oh, go, Gary. No, I, I, uh, I wasn't saying anything. With that, um, I'll go to our last one. Uh, the last quotation of Malachi 4, 5, and 6 uh, that we have uh, comes from Ben Sirah. Uh, and so this one is actually the earliest quotation that we would have of the three that we've read. Um, but I wanted to save it for last because of, of how it reads. Uh, and so Ben everyone who been, oh, go ahead. Yeah. You, I, oh, yeah. So Ben Sira is, uh, so the name itself is son of Sira or Sirach, um, who's writing uh, in the, the second century BCE or BC. Uh, is writing down the wisdom and the knowledge of the Jewish faith. And so we get the text of Ben Sira in some versions of the Apocrypha. It's included as one of these writings. Uh, and so it's a, it's a late Second Temple text that is preserving some of the wisdom or the knowledge of um, the Jewish faith uh, up to that time period. And so I don't know if you want to add anything else uh, no. with that, Gary, but... Um, so Ben Sir is the text that we have access to uh, within the Apocrypha and in, in other ways, there's a number of accessible texts online. But uh, Ben Sir does something really interesting uh, towards the end of those, those writings uh, is they write about this idea of a history of Judaism. It's called the Hymn of the Fathers. And it kind of starts with the early parts of history and recounts everything that happens throughout what we have in the Old Testament uh, until it ultimately leads to this idea that all the wisdom and all the knowledge and all the experience of the ancestors is going to be bestowed upon the Jews in Ben Sira's day. Um, and so this, this presentation of the fathers includes a quotation from Malachi for uh, and five, it was five and six. And so as um, Sirach is, is it's referenced usually within scholarship is, is presenting this, um, the presentation of Malachi four, five and six is this, it is written. So we know that this copy of, of Malachi is circulating in a written form by the time that this text is produced. And it says it is written before, and then we have a, a lacunae, or we have a space, we have a break in the manuscript, so we don't know what's being said there. But then the Hebrew text picks up, to return the heart of the fathers to the children. There's that first promise that we are familiar with. But then the second part of it is, and restore the tribes of Jacob. <laughs> well, that's great. And so for, for, who, for the author of Sirach, 
we have a completely different uh, understanding that branches out and goes kind of along the lines of what we read in, in Pseudophilo, where it's not just a lineal father to son, mother to uh, mother to daughter, grandparents line of these turning of hearts. But there's also this idea of restoring the tribes of Jacob, the gathering of scattered Israel. Uh, and we know how important that very phrase and that topic is when it comes to the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. And especially in our day with President Nelson, where there is nothing more important happening in the earth today than the gathering of scattered Israel. And we have this text within a temple context talking about restoring the tribes of Israel. That's so fantastic. And, and it fits really well with this. Uh, I was talking about earlier about uh, Moroni's little change, right? Where he says to the, the, uh, the promises made to the fathers, which is the Abrahamic covenant, which includes within it that when uh, the descendants of Abraham scatter, that are, are stray or are scattered, that they will be gathered again, that there will be a remnant gathered, right? So this, uh, uh, that's interesting because Moroni's changing includes within it, I think, that idea of the restoration of the, the tribes of Jacob to the covenant, to, to truly being in the covenant. Uh, and that's what being President Nelson keeps telling us. Gathering is uh, when you help anyone on either side of the veil. Uh, make that covenant and come to Christ. So that's that's it, it's. I, I think like President Nelson could have uh, been writing Ben Sira and been, been happy with that, right? So that's that's great. And 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 coming back to that Moroni quote, then how important is that latter part of the prophecy? If it were not so, the whole earth would be utterly wasted in his coming. Yeah. And, and, and this is something I tell my students frequently and, and that I talk about on a, on a regular basis is we sometimes often say, how wicked does the world have to get before the second coming of the Lord? And these texts actually tell us how righteous do we need to become before the second coming of the Lord and how much work do we need to get done? What work does the Lord need to have accomplished that we haven't done yet? that the Lord is waiting so that the earth isn't wasted in his coming. Mm. It's almost a merciful thing that the Lord hasn't come yet, because there are things that we still need to do that would, I don't know if the whole earth would be utterly wasted if the Lord came tomorrow, but are there families and are there individuals who would be cut off because of the fact that they wouldn't have the time to be able to have their hearts turned to their fathers, to their neighbors, or to the gathering of the tribes of Israel. Uh, so profound. That's uh, and so important. That's exactly right. Wow. So um, th this text in Malachi has just taken on a whole new life for me, in the sense that there's all these different variations, uh, and I love that. That's how Joseph Smith says it: that they that there was a variation from the way in which it reads in our Bible. Uh, that phrase to me opens up an opportunity to learn more. And so now when I see variations in scripture, whether it be the Book of Mormon quoting the, the Bible or the Doctrine and Covenants quoting the Book of Mormon or the Bible, I don't look at it as a contradiction, but I view it as an opportunity for me to learn more and to have more revelatory experiences. Uh, that's that's so profound. And maybe we'll just throw one more little idea on there that uh, the Savior, when he quotes Isaiah in in to the Nephites and third Nephi 
he, sometimes he's rearranging verses and and there there's uh, one set of verses i think it's from uh, in 35 20 and 23 if i remember right where he he gives some of the same verses in one order one time and then he quotes them again but he changes the order a little bit and so on and the idea really uh, that i take away from that anyway is that uh the savior is using these to teach what he wants us to learn and again the, the text i mean i do believe the text is sacred but the text is not the ultimate source this is something president oaks has taught before what we're trying to get to by using scriptural text is the ultimate source which is the holy ghost revealing truth to us and the truth that we need to learn at that moment and so i think the savior moroni and others I do, i'm not authorized to rearrange scriptural text i, I just want to be clear about that but i think <laughs> the savior and moroni are and and joseph smith was uh I, I, most people are not but but those guys are and uh and we should be so grateful to have those inspired teachers who can give us different ways of looking at these things as, so that we can learn even more from the same set of scriptures. I love it. Amen. Yeah. Well, thank you, Josh. This is just, uh, I, again, they're such important verses for us. They, they really are. And um, uh, especially as we come to understand how much they're about the covenant and how important that covenant, that gathering is uh, and always has been, but especially right now, I think President Nelson, it's not just important because President Nelson is teaching us about it. it. President Nelson is teaching us about it, in my opinion, because it is becoming increasingly important as we get increasingly closer to the second coming. Uh, and our need for understanding those covenants, feeling part of those covenants, wanting to, to receive the blessings of those covenants and wanting to help other people receive those blessings and gather in Israel is more acute now than ever before. And so what a wonderful time to focus on these verses and all these different ways of looking at those verses that all end up pointing us in that same direction. So thank you for taking us on that journey, Josh. That's fantastic. Well, thank you for uh, letting me have the opportunity to use some of these old resources that are piled away in my dissertation. <laughs> That's great. And what a, what a great way to, uh, to wind up. I mean, this will be, we'll have a few more episodes this year, but they won't be on the Old Testament text per se, they'll be on Christmas and on preparing ourselves for um, uh, for the New Testament and so on. Uh, but but what a great uh, way to wrap this up by focusing on the the covenant and uh, uh, how important that is in Malachi's day and in our day. In fact, maybe I'll. Uh, this is a, 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 certainly a shameless plug, but maybe I'll just use this opportunity. I hadn't thought of it, but. Uh, uh, I actually will have another book on, on the covenant coming out in January, like January 3rd or somewhere around there. Uh, and uh, I've just felt like we needed more, uh, even though I've written one book. And I felt like we needed more to help answer some questions people have that they hear the prophets say this or apostles say this and that and and so on. Um, and uh, as you and I have talked about this, I'm sitting here feeling all the more grateful that, that uh, we have you know so many resources right now that, that i'm able to draw from and then create from and others are able to draw from i just really feel like um focusing on the covenant and the gathering of israel is very important for us and i'm grateful that the lord keeps helping us but he, he sent you to help us see it more and more on that text he's uh I, janet erickson just spoke on the, the covenant in a devotional at byu right there are so many people right now who are helping us see this and uh, i'm extremely grateful for that so thank you for being part of that covenant team so absolutely 
All right. A great way to wrap up the, the Old Testament. So to our audience, we're, we hope this was useful for you, and we hope that you are inspired and edified and ready to go gather Israel and, and, and have that covenant consciousness and identity more part of your life, as President Nelson has told us. Uh, if you're going to think of your identities, your, your first identity should be child of God and second child of the covenant. And I would add to that a child of the covenant who loves God because that's what the covenant is about um, and loves each other uh, and then disciples of Christ. And so uh, hopefully uh, that has happened for you in a deepening way as we've spoken together and that you love uh, those around you so much that uh, whether it's through this podcast or any other way, you want to share that covenant with them or a deeper appreciation and understanding of that covenant with them. And that uh, the covenant uh, community and family continues to expand so that we all are bound together, restored in our hearts to each other, uh, and, uh, all the way back to Abraham and to Adam, and then uh, through that to, to Christ and God. So we, we hope that's what's happening for everyone. And uh, I hope that uh, it's, I'm having a hard time saying goodbye to the Old Testament right now, but uh, hopefully it's been. Uh, uh, that is a, a beautiful and appropriate way to end uh, our Old Testament study and to share it with others.